0: Welcome to Season 2 of Big Tech. I'm David Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of The Logic, a publication focused on the innovation economy.
1: And I'm Taylor Owen, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation and a Professor of Public Policy at McGill.
0: And this is a podcast that explores a world reliant on tech, those creating it, and those trying to govern it.
1: So, we started recording interviews for this season of Big Tech before the outbreak of COVID 19. And we'll be sharing all of those with you in the coming weeks. But we can't really talk about tech right now without talking about the coronavirus.
0: Like every other facet of our lives, Taylor, the coronavirus has had wide ranging effects on our technologies and the way we use them, from the shift to telecommuting to the privacy concerns around contact tracing.
1: And like everything, Governments are also having to adapt right now, as they struggle to fight the disinformation that threatens our democracies and indeed actually our public health. The stakes have been risen around this issue. There's a lot to unpack in this season of Big Tech. If you've listened to this podcast before,
0: you know that fake news and disinformation are aren't exactly new.
1: Another
2: round of highly anticipated tech hearings are underway in Washington. The leaders of Facebook and Twitter are testifying about how they're trying to stop the spread of misinformation on their platforms.
1: But COVID-19 has brought about a wave of disinformation that is unprecedented, both in its scale.
0: I do think that the concern in terms of government messaging has to do with being able to cut through all of the foolishness online. That is a new level that MERS and SARS We are are on a... That, to me, is something that's a a, a new level of
1: difficulty. And its impact. They claim to have a holy potion that medical professionals are calling poison.
0: All of this has meant a lot of work for Angie Drobnik-Holand. Angie is the editor-in-chief of PolitiFact, the Pulitzer Prize-winning fact-checking organization.
1: We'll sit down with Angie to talk about where all this fake news is coming from, And whether this could be a tipping point for the way social media platforms and governments handle the problem of disinformation. Angie drobnik Holen, welcome to Big Tech.
0: Thank you for having me. So I imagine you're as busy as you've ever been. How are you holding up?
2: (laughs) We're doing all right. We are very, very busy. Our website traffic is off the charts and we're all working from home. But so far, so good. Our, our fact checking method is pretty well established. So we do have a lot of comfort in how we fact check and how we go about doing the work.
0: I mean, maybe you just alluded to this with the traffic numbers, but can you give us a temperature check on the state of fact checking right now? Are you seeing more or less misinformation online than you were before the COVID 19 outbreak?
2: We are definitely seeing more. It does follow a trend that we see whenever there is a high profile news event, and it can be national or it can be worldwide. We have seen a trend where there's an explosion of misinformation that follows. It's a very clear trend, big news, followed by misinformation, followed by fact checking.
1: And I mean, in previous moments where We've seen that kind of spike in misinformation. There's been there's been pretty wide spectrums of what we've seen, right? Everything from state-sponsored disinformation to hoaxes and financial opportunism around it. Are you seeing that same spectrum of harmful information around this?
2: Well, I think we're seeing the spectrum of misinformation. We're definitely seeing um, hoaxes that seem to play on people's fears. Um, there's always an element online that's what I would call clickbait. There is an element of people who do seem to be trying to share good information and just have caught the wrong piece of information and they're sharing it. It's not ill-intentioned. It's just part of the confusion of dealing with a new illness. And then we also have the political layer on top of that. We've been fact-checking President Donald Trump fairly regularly. He's been doing daily press briefings. And there's a lot of false statements in those.
1: It feels like there's some real persistent pieces of fully false information, right? around like originating from a bat and the from a lab in China. And are there some key things like that that are really circulating widely that you're concerned about?
2: Well, I think the biggest category we've seen lately is false treatments. So people say that drinking bleach can cure you or drinking warm water. Now, drinking warm water won't hurt you, but drinking bleach will. So, and, and there's a range of kind of phony cures. We've also seen a lot of conspiracy theories about where the virus came from. And the truth is, we don't know where it came from, but scientists can say it does not look man-made. It doesn't look like something that was created and deployed. Now, I'm not a scientist, but they say that these viruses have markers, and the scientists say this is something naturally occurring. Now, how it exactly came in contact with humans, we don't know. But it was not something that was engineered.
1: That idea that we don't know seems to be sort of what makes this moment a bit idiosyncratic and that there is just a ton we don't know and our facts are evolving so regularly. I'm thinking even things of like wearing masks, right? Where the scientific community and the medical community seems to be or was for a time divided. And how do you treat that kind of content that sort of sits in this gray area? Um, It can't really be fact-checked, or the fact-checks change from moment to moment, right?
2: Right. We are in this moment of what I would call informational flux, where there's a lot of stuff we don't know. And I think that's why people have uh, turned to news so often, and why TV is seeing higher ratings, we're seeing more hits, because people want to know And there's something of an information scarcity around this novel coronavirus. Um, For us, we pick claims to fact check that are often making extreme claims. So we can't say exactly where the virus came from, but we do feel confident that it was not engineered in the lab because it doesn't have those markers. So that's kind of the area where we stick as fact checkers. We try to pick claims that we feel there's certainty about. We say what we don't know. And sometimes the facts on the ground change and then we come back and we do more reporting. And that's been our philosophy for years now, before coronavirus, and I think it still works now. Even though it is a new situation, scientists are still studying this, there is a lot we don't know.
0: Angie, what drives people to make and disseminate this misinformation? Is it to make money? Is it to manipulate elections?
2: I think there are multiple motivations. Uh, Certainly, we see one group that is trying to make money, and it's just getting people to click on the phony information. I think we also saw in the last election that some of these are organized misinformation campaigns coming from foreign countries. Russia was the the big purveyor in 2016, but in recent times there's been some evidence that China is also involved in this. And then some of them are, in the U.S., uh, domestic political advocates, like fans or detractors of Donald Trump, who are trying to put together some powerful um, emotional messaging to criticize him or motivate voters And then finally, there's a category that is kind of the most baffling to me, which are people who just seem to get a kick out of fooling other people, and they're just kind of trolling. And that's a very frustrating category of people, because they don't really seem to have any other motivation than fooling people. And so I think they're going to be harder to um, dissuade.
1: In in terms of the foreign interference category, I've seen a fair amount of discussion about Russian interference right now, but also that potentially the Chinese government is using some of the same tactics that the Russian government did in the 2016 election. Are you seeing that as well?
2: Well, it's hard for us to tell, to be honest. Usually we turn to academic researchers after the fact who give us better information than we can get on our own about where the messaging is coming from. Because we're fact-checkers, we're focused on the content. I mean, we're interested in who's purveying messages but a lot of times it's really hard to tell
1: yeah, and you're looking at the output right Not yeah. necessarily the input and the network patterns of it exactly
2: we're looking at the output whereas some of the academia can really look at you know internet traffic patterns and really see which campaigns are coordinated and which are not. One of the interesting things, though, that's happened since 2016, which the, the academics have told us and we can see for ourselves, too, is that lots of Americans have picked up the tactics of misinformation and that kind of very negative messaging. So Americans <laughs> are learning, too.
1: Yeah, we've done, run a big monitoring project in Canada and see that here, too, right? It's third-party groups, it's individuals, political campaigns, all. Using these same tactics, because they because they work, unfortunately, right?
2: Yeah, and for us at Politifact, when we debunk things, we have this standard methodology. We're basically tracking information back to see where it came from. If something is misinformation, it usually seems to spring out of nowhere. Um, there's not a lot of history to the piece of information until you find it being circulated on the internet with like a "Can you believe this?" tag. When things are real they tend to have some sort of history to them so that you can find a study in a peer-reviewed journal or you can find an on-the-ground news report from a reputable news organization. And so we really are focused on the idea that we can know what is real or not, and we just need to think about it systematically and go through the channels looking for evidence. And then we can find it and say that's true or we say there's no evidence for this it's a conspiracy theory it's false
1: so in some ways this is an epistemological problem it's it's about how we determine and then signal what is true and false in society and how we how we come to know about the world but but one of the real challenges here is that very often it's political figures that exist in this gray area and particularly now we're seeing disinformation flow from the top um, how do you as a journalist deal with that, where it's the political figures themselves that are spreading the mis- and disinformation?
2: Oh, it's incredibly challenging. And I studied literature in the 1980s, so I'm I'm very familiar with these epistemological arguments that say the truth is subjective and relative. And, you know, I think that's fine for where what I would describe as metaphysical questions, but in the realm of politics, things can be confirmed or debunked, and it's very seldom that I've been fact-checking a political claim and come to the conclusion that, oh, it just depends on how you look at it. I mean, things can either be confirmed or debunked, and I've seen that over and over again. So whenever a politician says, oh, well, it's my opinion, and I'm entitled to my own opinions, the facts are subjective, no, no. I would push back very, very hard against that. Mm. And that's what we're seeing now. I mean, I think with President Trump's press briefings, especially on the coronavirus, he's trying to create his own more positive reality about the state of the pandemic and his own administration's response to it. And I think that dynamic is what is so confounding and strange to deal with as journalists,
1: so I, I want to transition a bit to the, the platform's role in this. Um, you, you guys are part of Facebook's fact-checking network. Can you give us a sense of how that's working now and how you evaluate that system at the moment?
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting program because the way it grew was that after the 2016 election, some of us fact-checkers around the world had connected into a network. We call it the International Fact-Checking Network. And it's really just a way for us to share best practices and support each other in the work. But after the 2016 election, we wrote an open letter that we published on the Internet to Facebook that basically said, you have a problem with misinformation on your platform, and we think we could help. And then Facebook, to frankly, to my surprise, took us up on that offer and started a, what they call a third-party fact-checking program.
1: Yeah, and there's been a lot of concerns about, I guess, the scale of it and whether it is matching the scale of the problem, discrete from the efforts of individual organizations. And I I saw the other day that Avaz found that 40% of the content that they had identified that were flagged by the fact-checking network were still up on the site. Do you think the resources that are needed to actually fact-check a platform that has 2 billion pieces of content a day are there? And how, how do you come at that scale challenge here?
2: That's really hard to tell because, I mean, it's a huge platform. And one thing that I have definitely learned as we've done this work, the scale of the platform, how many users there are, the freedom that users have to post. So I I can't really answer that question. And really, I think the only people who could answer it would be Facebook. And as I'm sure you know, they're pretty private about uh, (laughs) their data and how they handle these things. Um, I can say, from our point of view, we are able to access and fact-check misinformation at a level we've, we never had before. Because before this program, we would tell our readers, hey, if you see something on Facebook, email it to us and we'll be happy to fact-check it. Well, now we're fact-checking many more posts and putting out those fact-checks. And when we started the program... The fact checks, they did okay traffic-wise. I mean, we could see that people were clicking on them, and, you know, they were just okay. But now, for whatever reason, there's some of the most popular fact checks on our site. So from an impact point of view, from our metrics, from PolitiFact world, the program seems to be working well. I can't tell from Facebook's point of view how well it's working. or if. But you can see how, like, misinformation is more of a process to be managed, like, I don't think we'll ever get to a day for any of the platforms when we're like, there are zero posts of misinformation on this platform, because I think there's some kind of human impulse to create this kind of content, whether it's for monetary gain or for trolling purposes or for a tall tale. So I think if we see improvement here, and I do think just the dynamics of the program, uh, there there is improvement. That satisfies me as a fact-checker.
0: So, a few months ago, the company said it wouldn't take down political ads that contained misinformation. Now they're taking down misleading content fairly aggressively related to COVID-19. What do you think that means for content moderation after this pandemic is over?
2: I am very intrigued and eager to see how this develops I have always been in favor of fact-checking political content, whether it's on Facebook or anywhere else. So Facebook's exemptions are something that, in principle, I disagree with. And we've told them that. And I think what we're seeing with the coronavirus, because it's such a critical public health issue, they have quite a bit of power to rein in misinformation. And I am hoping that they will take lessons from this really extreme case and apply it to more everyday types of misinformation. Part of this is my bias as a fact checker, but I just, I am all in favor of freedom of speech and the First Amendment, but I think false information is extraordinarily pernicious, and it needs to be handled in a relatively aggressive manner. It can't just be left to say, oh, well, we hope people will find the right information eventually. No, that's not a way for a healthy democracy to function with with misinformation swirling all around and people being not sure what's true or not.
1: And part of the challenge of that misinformation swirling all around is how it it is incentivized. It seems to me there's not just a point of creation and point of distribution problem around this false information, but there's also a structural problem that... Sensational information is incentivized, and certain types of engagement go viral on these platforms versus others. Um, we talked about the financial motivations behind digital advertising and micro-targeting. And that's not just an issue of fact-checking, that's an issue of the design of the system itself. And so far, I think we've been really reluctant to go there because it gets at the financial models of the companies, the very nature of our information system. And I Guess I, I personally kind of hope that this moment where we're really putting a priority on everybody getting reliable information might shift that discussion a bit. But I'm I'm curious what you think about that.
2: I think it definitely could. And basically um time will tell. I, I know that there is pressure on the platforms coming from a variety of sources right now so their their users are not happy with the false information regulatory authorities are not happy so then you have this example of this the coronavirus and you are seeing tools being used where maybe there would be some reluctance before so i do hope it would shift but i do think that we are in early days of internet technology and there's more to be learned and i do think one day we're going to look back on these years and be like, "Wow, can you believe it was like that or that we put up with that kind of thing?" And the answer will be like, "Yeah, it just took us a while to figure out how to how to handle this communications tool in a way that was relatively healthy."
1: God, I hope that's the answer. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I hope that's the answer too. I'm an optimist. <laughs> yeah. Now, you'd say relatively healthy, but like I, I'm I feel very fortunate because I've been born in the digital age and the pre-digital, so I've seen both. Like, I remember when people said, like, oh, it's terrible that newspapers have this monopoly on information and they only show what they want to show and they only serve powerful interests and minority voices are not represented. And if only the people could have a tool to share their point of view, everything would be so much better. Well, then we did get the tool, and I do think that uh, you do hear a lot more voices, and that's a good thing. But it didn't come without problems. So I just technologies, they kind of give and they take, and what we want to do is find, I think, from an informational point of view, we want to find good ways to manage them. It's not a problem that's going to be solved. There's not going to be some golden utopia in the future, but we can make our processes work better or worse, depending on our choices.
0: You know, one thing that I found quite heartening through this terrible crisis that we're going through is the flocking to traditional news outlets that a lot of readers have done. Obviously, as a journalist, which I am, that's been an encouraging sign. Now, you counter that with In March, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter sending thousands of their moderators home, and they aren't journalists in the traditional sense, but in many ways they are. And these companies are being forced to rely more heavily on AI to do their content moderation, and that's led to some problems. like Outlets like The Atlantic are being taken down because the AI isn't good enough to do that work yet. So how do you think the impact of AI content moderation now will impact all of this moving forward? Because we know with a lot of certainty that all of these companies are going to do everything they can to make sure that that gets up to speed. And it's, it's even more effective now than it was.
2: I'm kind of down on the AI technology. And you mentioned the Atlantic. PolitiFact was a victim there too. For There were like two days at the beginning of the crisis where our readers were emailing us, telling us our content was blocked on Facebook. And got in touch with Facebook and they did straighten it out relatively quickly. But I think it's a perfect example of the perils of AI. When you're dealing with problems of truth and falsity, they're very abstract concepts and they don't lend themselves to zeros and ones. And I know that there's a lot of hopefulness among technologists that automated solutions will help here. But I just I just have a hard time seeing how they're going to be implemented on a wide scale because whenever they're tried, we see these um, faults and failings because the computers are just not as sophisticated as human beings when it comes to natural language processing and understanding messaging and being able to deal with uh, the same content being expressed in different ways and using different wordings. So I'm not saying I'm against AI. Let's try it. I just haven't seen it work very well, and I'm I'm a little dubious that we're going to get to some perfect place with AI.
0: All right, so journalists win. I'll take that as a
1: victory.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, again, another bias I have. I'm in favor of the journalists.
1: I wonder if, with the public health impact so clear of misinformation now, the governments are going to use that to step more aggressively into this content moderation conversation. The the Canadian government, for example, has just said they're considering a far more aggressive fake news law in response to health information. Um, I wonder what you think about that. Is is this going to be a, a new space of government intervention?
2: I think we're going to see some governments step in. I mean, certainly Europe has been quite aggressive in creating new regulations and legal frameworks for the platforms and for misinformation. And I think they're leading on these issues. I think in the United States, we have two problems. Number one, we have this tradition of First Amendment freedom. So any sort of curtailment of messaging is problematic on that level. But then we have complete congressional gridlock going on because there is legislation in the U.S. Congress To crack down on misinformation and false messaging, especially around elections. But it's just not going to go anywhere while our government has the makeup that it does. One thing that's heartening to me is that I think that everyday people, and I'll end on a positive note, are, are seeing and understanding that they don't have to settle For bad information, that they have sources that they can go to, like PolitiFact, like other fact checkers, and that they can put pressure on some of these platforms to improve their practices. And I do think that we are on the other side of things getting worse. I do expect things to get better from here on out or stay the same, because I think that the people have lost patience with so much misinformation and that we are working. Um, towards solutions now.
0: As I, I welcome and appreciate and value your optimism. Uh, so I'm going to uh, do what I do, which is come in with one last question for you that's maybe not as optimistic. Uh, what if we don't?
2: Yeah, what if we don't?
0: What What's at stake if we're unable to curb this flood of disinformation that we're up against?
2: Oh, nothing good. Uh, return to the dark ages. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the... The the metaphor that comes to my mind is when barbarians overran Europe and some of the great manuscripts of, uh, of civilization were hidden in uh, monasteries until the days of chaos passed, so to speak. But, I mean, to me, it very much it does feel like what journalists and other people who value reason and logic, what we're working for, are... Um, it is an approach where we deal with the world through intellect and science and rationality. And so if we're going backwards in that respect, I mean, I think we could be in for some dark days, but I do think there are still those of us who are working to preserve you know, the old methods of how we approach the world, you know, using that reason, logic, science, And I'm hopeful those will prevail.
0: Angie, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and The Logic and produced by Antica Productions.
0: Make sure you subscribe to Big Tech on Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.